it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is episode part two. I don't know what what episode episode number it is, but it's part two of Israel Keys. Yeah. Episode Derf Teen. (laughs) Teen. Yes. Yep. So... Where we left off last time was that Israel Keys had just gotten arrested, and we are about to find out from his interrogation what has happened to Samantha Koenig, who he had kidnapped a month before at this point, I think. From Common Ground. Yes. According to Israel's interview, he tells investigators that on February 1st, he had stopped at the store after 7 p.m. to pick up a Snickers bar. Snickers are very important to him. Mm. And wild and mild cigars. He parked at the Home Depot on Tudor Road and decided to rob the Common Grounds coffee stand at closing time. And basically, he said, they were like, why did you pick it? And he was like, because they were open later. Oh, okay. End of story. Like, because their whole thing was like, what's your connection to Samantha? Did you know her? Did you meet her? And he's like, no, she was just working there that day. That is so crazy. It's terrifying. He brought with him zip ties, a headlamp. He wore a police scanner in his ear, and he had a twenty-two revolver. He walked across the street to the coffee stand, and we know what the next 17 minutes entailed because we have the security video. So we already talked about that in the last episode. So that was a 17 minute long endeavor. At this point in the interrogation, Israel wanted to know what evidence had been recovered from his sheds at his house. And the word sheds jumped out to the investigators because they're like, we only looked through one shed. So, Now, basically, they're fucked because if Israel finds out that they don't have everything, because he basically was saying, like, well, you've already got everything. I might as well tell you, you know, like, you're going to find all this stuff in the shed. I might as well just go ahead and tell you. And Feldis is in the interrogation at this point, and he's like, did you find this stuff in the shed? Did you find this stuff in the shed? And he's like, uh you know, I don't know. I don't have a list of what all they found. So like, why don't you just tell me what they're supposed to be looking for? And, um, and then I'll like, did he think he was talking to a toddler? uh, It's so ridiculous. Like for whatever reason in the beginning though, Israel did just kind of go with it. And the seasoned investigators were like, no, what you tell him, I mean, they couldn't say this, but after the fact they're like, What you tell him is you don't get to know what all we found or you tell him we have so many people processing all this stuff that we've got thousands of photos to go through and we have all kinds of like they're digging into everything in detail. So you're just going to have to wait like you don't get to know everything that we found. Yeah, because at that point, then Israel Keys is running the show. Exactly. And and that's what that's what happens with him. And it's uh, now, of course, I don't know what 
you're supposed to do, but those FBI agents did, and they got fucked out of being able to do what they were supposed to do. Because of Feldis. Yeah. So he's like, here's here's an idea. Do you just want to start from the backwards and end at the beginning? Is that Would that help you? Would that be better? Um, since we don't have anything, basically. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll start at the... I'll start at the end and I'll work my way backwards then. So he said that he wanted them to pull up Matanuska Lake State Park on the laptop that was in the conference room. And he said that he'd gone ice fishing for about three days. And when he'd gotten there, he'd cut an eight by eight hole in the ice and covered it with plywood. And he said he had to make three trips down to the ice with a sled because you can't pull your truck all the way down there. And when asked what he brought down to the ice, he replied, and trigger warning, guys, it's horrible. He says, on the first day was the head, the legs, and the arms. And the investigator said, of Samantha Koenig? And he says, yep. So now they knew what, for sure, what a lot of the investigators believed at this point, because it had been so long, but Samantha Koenig was no longer alive. So... At this point, he decides to go back to the beginning. So he says after he took Samantha, he drove her to a nearby park. He did that because he needed to wait for his girlfriend who lived with him to go to sleep because he was going to bring her back there, which supposedly he had not done before and probably he hadn't done before, but we don't know for sure. So, and, and his daughter was there, so he wanted her to go to sleep too. Horrific. He had texted people that were trying to contact Samantha from her phone, letting them know that she was pissed and she needed some time away. Then he pulled the battery out of her phone so that he could not be tracked driving to his home. Once he felt it was late enough, he decided to go back home. He, When he got pulled in his driveway, he went ahead and replaced the tool rack on his truck that he'd removed earlier. And then he brought Samantha inside the shed. He said that he tied a rope around her neck and he screwed it to the wall. He chained her up. He had a flight in three hours at this point to leave for a cruise with his family. So one thing that Israel Keys did a lot was give himself such a tight timeline for these crimes that it would be super hard to tie him to them for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. So now we're looking at three hours from the time that he's got to be at the airport and he's got this person in his shed with his family at home. Like, it's insane. He still needed the ATM card, though. So he gets Samantha's address from her. He drives to her house. He parks four or five blocks away. And then he breaks into the truck and gets her ID and ATM card, just like Dwayne said. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds outlandish as fuck. But it happened. But it happened. He's brazen. Like, and the thing is, it almost worked for him. Like, it worked for him for a while. Yeah. Yeah. He was reluctant to give details in this interrogation, but he did confirm that Samantha was not alive in the photo that he sent on February 23rd with that February 13th copy of the Anchorage Daily News. He had gone on his cruise and returned on the 18th. So... When he returned, he unwrapped Samantha's body, still in the shed, and he said he thawed her out. So 
because it was so cold in Alaska and he just left her in the shed, her body froze and he knew it was going to quote unquote keep. I mean, this is how he refers to bodies. And some of the other bodies that he kind of dances around with interrogators that he never gives them, you know, they're like, they're like, if you want, if you want to move this forward, get this over with, like, we need to know everything. You got to give us more stuff, whatever. And he's like, you know, frankly, those bodies are going to keep. He says that over and over. And I'm like, it's like, he's talking about meat or yes, something. Like it's a casserole, Sheila. It'll stay like, <laughs> what the fuck? It's so gross. It's awful. Like these are people you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, they asked him though, had rigor mortis set in because now you're like almost three weeks from when she's been killed. And he said, no, she was still, quote unquote, very floppy. It's oh my horrible. So he got his like heater and set it up in there, whatever. <sighs> Awful. He then committed an act of necrophilia. Oh, okay. And he said that then he pulled out the makeup that she carried in her handbag because he'd brought the purse with her or with them. He used some of her makeup, some that he'd bought at Walmart, and some of his girlfriend's extra makeup. Oh, my God. Can you imagine being the girlfriend and finding this out? Vomit. Like, I think you would immediately just vomit. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? Mm -mm. So he wanted to make her look alive. He said he taped her mouth in an attempt to give her an expression, and then he braided her hair just like he had braided his daughter's hair. Yeah. Um, to make her look different than the night that she was taken. Okay, another, I mean, this is awful, so get ready. He used fishing line to sew her eyelids open to look like she was squinting. And then he took Polaroid photos of her and kind of intentionally made them a little bit blurry, like doing whatever he could. Um, when I first heard about this case and I Googled Samantha Koenig, like a word of warning to anybody who looks her up, if you haven't already, you will see that photo because it's out there. And once you know that she's not alive in that photo, it's, it's haunting. It's horrible. Like I, I was not ready for that. Um, and then he left that note, you know, where he'd specified in the text at the park after this, is when he dismembered her and drove her body out to the lake. And then he also said that while he was out there, because other people were ice fishing out there. So while he was out there, he's like, well, I might as well do some fishing. So he caught some fish and brought him back home. You know, he's using the same hole that he's dumping this poor girl's body into. He's fishing. And then he's bringing that home and feeding it to his family. Like, because they were like, what'd you do with the fish? He's like, I brought them home and I ate them. Mm. Cooked them up. Like, no. It's just like a normal day. Yeah, like it doesn't compute activity. to him. What's the problem here? Right. It's insane. I mean, talk about obviously sociopath, but right. psychopath. You know, like. Yeah. Yeah, so and one of the there. investigators talks about, you know, you might think you know, you can spot a psychopath and a sociopath, but he's like, until you're in the room with one, you don't know how soul jarring it is to have a conversation with somebody like that to like hear these things come out of their mouth and then and like it not matter like 
oh yeah, well, I dumped that girl's body. And he even said at the point that he was still in the shed with Samantha before he dismembered her when he was doing things to her corpse that his daughter was knocking on the shed door. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, had she walked in, she would have seen this. Like she's 10. Yeah. Because she was getting ready to leave. And it's like, she's knocking on the door and he's like, go back in the house. I'll be there in a minute. Like the fuck. And the, the thing about Israel keys, like this, this story is absolutely horrific. What he did to Samantha Koenig what she had to go through is heartbreaking enough, but it's only a fraction of the story. Like he had so much more and there's still a lot more that we don't know, but he was known and admitted to burying caches of weapons, money and other items he could use to kill random individuals on one of the many trips he took over the course of at least 14 years. So what he would do is he would fly into one city, he'd rent a car, he'd drive hundreds of miles through convoluted routes, and end up in another city. At some point, he'd bury his cash to use in a murder or bank robbery another time. The only other case that we know for sure that has been attributed to Israel Keys is the disappearance of Bill and Lorraine Courier from Essex, Vermont. The fact that Bill and Lorraine Courier have been murdered is 100% random, and that's what makes Israel Keys so terrifying, along with the fact that he was seemingly incredibly meticulous, and he could delay that gratification. He could wait. Yeah, the patience is yeah. insane. Yeah, and I say seemingly meticulous because he did lose control, um, but he attempted to plan very well. And in a lot of ways he did because the FBI still don't have any victim names other than the three that he gave to them. But towards the end, he did start to lose control. I mean, using Samantha's debit card the way that he did was incredibly stupid. And, and actually taking somebody in the city that he lived in was typically a rule that he would not break. But I think he that urge was just too strong, like he couldn't overcome it anymore. And so he just, I think that's where he was like losing control. And he had an extra three hours with nothing to do, apparently. So I know, like that's, that is so crazy. He did a lot. Yeah. in those three hours, I mean, going all the way to her house, like that's such a huge risk and then coming back and doing, I mean, it's just insane. In 2007, during a trip to visit his family, he had buried a kill kit in Essex, Vermont. Then in June of 2011, he was back in Essex. He dug the kill kit up and drove around to find a victim. This time, though, he was looking for a couple. And here's another terrifying fact about Israel Keys. He didn't have a victimology, really. He preferred lightweight people, he said, like when they asked him what type of victim, you know, if you had a preference, he'd be like, I don't really have a preference. Man, woman, like none of that doesn't matter. But he said lightweight just because they're easy to get rid of, like dispose of. And he, that was really it. He didn't care like age, height, hair color, skin color, hair color, eye color, none of that stuff. Like, there was literally nothing else. He just, he said that 
he wanted victims that he couldn't be tied to in any way at all. He preferred remote or desolate areas and kind of adopted a beggars can't be choosers attitude. Like, you know, he's like, if I'm taking what presents as an opportunity to me, then I'm not going to be so choosy that I lose an opportunity. Yeah. Awful. It is awful. Equal opportunity. Serial killer. Right. I think I even had it pegged down just from looking at the outside because of the way they had their backyard set up. It just looked like an older couple that didn't have kids kind of house. Drano was an idea I had uh, in case they were found right away. I didn't want um, there to be any DNA on the outside of the bodies. The other thought I had that it would start the the decomposition and they would break them down a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. As a kid, I always used to dream that I'd find buried treasure and I figured, well, I might as well create it. <laughs> so he'd broken into the courier's garage. He broke out the window leading into the home once they were asleep. And like he said, he was like waiting for the neighbors to go to sleep. So he said that Basically, he landed on that house because it looked like an older couple. Um, and he had a rule that he didn't want to pick any houses that he knew had kids or dogs in them just because it made it complicated, harder to get in and out of, stuff like that. And after he'd had his daughter, he said that he no longer would target children or he no longer would do anything to children. So, wow, good thing he's got morals, right? Exactly. Um, He's never admitted to hurting children in the past, but the fact that he said they were off limits at that point. Is yeah, you wonder. And he is suspected in a couple of disappearances in Washington when he was younger uh, to two girls around, I think, 11 or 12 years old disappeared. Um, it's before those were like in the late 90s. And he says his first murder was in 2001 sometime, but, I mean, a lot of it fits. So it's possible. Those two murders have never been solved. So he says, you know, at one point kids become off limits to him, so you have to wonder if he had something to do with those. But anyway, so he, he said the car in the driveway just made it look like, you know, that they were – an older couple or whatever. So he was wearing his headlamp. He brought his gun in with him. And at one point in the interrogation, he laughed saying that the couriers had a gun in their bedside table, but it wasn't loaded and wouldn't have done them much good. And he's, you know, his like stupid, I hate his laugh. He's like, me, 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 me. and he's like, Oof. yeah, they had a, they had a gun in their bedside table. A lot of good that did them. I'm like, Ugh. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. Yeah. Um, and then actually in the, another thing that I watched for this was, uh, the method of a serial killer. It's an oxygen show. I watched it on Hulu. Um, and I'll link to it, but there's an investigator that's talking and he's like, you know, people wonder why people sleep with guns on their bedside tables. And, and Israel says that he, once he broke into the house, he says within five or six seconds, he's in their bedroom. I mean, oh, wow, that's terrifying. You have no time. And especially if you don't have, you know, a dog or anybody to alert you, like all of a sudden somebody's standing over you. Yeah. And you're, that's the most vulnerable 
that you ever are is when you're sleeping. Exactly. Were they cooperative at first at least? Yeah. Pretty shocked. <laughs> I'm sure. People never expect stuff to happen. <laughs> you just make sure they know right away who's in charge and immediately tie them up. I jumped up over on the bed and grabbed her by the neck and shoved her head down into the pillow. They were convinced that I had the wrong people, that it was a case of mistaken identity or something. He said he bound them, took their car to an abandoned house he'd staked out and chosen for the attack. So, again, all of this was pre-planned. Like, that kill kit sat there for years. He comes back, he digs it up, still doesn't know who he's going to kill, but he had already found this abandoned house. He knew he was going to take him there, and he took their car. What he didn't plan on, though, was Bill and Lorraine fighting for their lives, and he says they fought the whole time. She was feisty. She was, like, fighting the whole time. I was yelling at him, where are you trying to get away? You're just making it worse. It's like, just let us go. I know you're in too deep, but you can still walk away. <laughs> I just kind of laughed at him in my head. I was like, you don't even know how much planning I've put into this. When he was getting Bill into the house, he said it must have taken him longer than he realized because by the time he got back outside, Lorraine had gotten herself out of the car. Oh, wow. And she was, like, running for the street. And he tackled her and brought her back in the house. He said that he brought Bill down to the basement. He brought Lorraine upstairs. And he said... um just neither one of them would stop fighting him. And he said that that really just fucked up all his plans because he, you know, he really needed them to cooperate a little bit more. So, wow. Must, yeah. Must have been tough for him. Yeah. He wouldn't say it out loud, but investigators knew that his plan was to rape both of them. But Bill kept fighting him. So he ended up getting pissed and shooting Bill several times. And that was down in the basement, and he said that the gun was so quiet that Lorraine probably had no idea. Like, she didn't hear it at all. Um, he then said he sexually assaulted Lorraine a few times, and then he brought her down to the basement where she could see Bill, and then he strangled her. And, and that's another thing, too. He didn't really have an M.O. for the the way he killed anybody. Yeah, not necessarily. Um, he did say that he strangled Samantha, but... But it, it's like he didn't prefer... He could shoot somebody or strangle them. Exactly. Like, it could be just whatever. Yeah. Just yeah. kind of however it played out. It wasn't necessarily one way that he preferred, it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. He actually left their bodies there, which was unlike him, but he knew that nobody was going to look there because the house looked like the only hope was to be demolished. He said even if somebody bought that property, he knew they were going to demolish the house. And so he's like, I figured whoever bought the property would basically handle it for me. So I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And he said that basically the reason that he kind of just left it up to that was because it was already daylight by the time all this had happened. Like everything took longer than he thought it was going to. So he didn't really feel like he had a lot of time. 
And he said that he poured Drano on their bodies to try to remove DNA evidence from the outside of their bodies. And then he left. So he was actually driving their car. And then this was another thing that really fucking pissed me off about him. In the interrogation, he was like, well, I was just going to take their car for a while, but I realized it was, you know, starting to make some noises and it was starting to have some problems. And so, I mean, it was just really like a piece of shit. And he's just like, he's laughing about it. Like, you know, I mean, I guess it'll get you from A to B if you're not driving far, but it's really a piece of shit. So I had to you know, dump it and find a different car. And I'm like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. Fucking nerve. Like this is their car. Like just to like talk shit about their, the quality of their fucking vehicle. And you just murdered them. Yeah. I just, ugh, I want to run him over. Yeah. He's such a piece of shit. And the callous way mm-hmm. he would discuss that. Is- yeah, of course. It's just, it's nothing to him, whatever. The next year when Israel was apprehended, so this was in 2011, he got arrested in 2012, and gave the information about the couriers, the FBI learned that the house had since been demolished. So Israel actually didn't know that. Whoever purchased the house, though, said that they could smell the overwhelming smell of decomposition when they walked in. So instead of looking down in the basement or whatever, they just had the house demolished. Oh, my gosh. So... The FBI did an extensive search of the landfill that took months, I think. And unfortunately, Bill and Lorraine's bodies have never been fully recovered. So the whole the whole thing that frustrated this entire investigation and the interrogations with Israel Keys was that he wanted to minimize any media attention that his case might get so that his daughter wouldn't have to grow up seeing information about him all over the place and his crimes. So he started getting really frustrated because when he gave them information about the couriers, he did not want people to attach his name to that. He was just giving this information to the investigators. And basically what they would do is give him stuff like he would work out deals where he'd be like give me a cigar and an americano or give me a cigar and a snickers bar and i'll tell you more and he'd even like stop in the middle of what he's doing and be like i can give you the rest of the story like you know everything that happened if i get a cigar (laughs) definitely calling all the shots yeah even little stuff like that what a douche What a douche. I think, too, if you don't want your kid to find out that you're a rapist and murderer and serial killer... Maybe don't be a rapist and a murderer and a serial killer. That's an option. That is one option. See, that's the thing that... I mean, there are so many things that piss me off, especially about him. But it's so frustrating and annoying Like when somebody's like, well, they get mad because people find out about it rather than being like, well, I'm the problem. Exactly. Like, Why yeah. would you do this to me? Exactly. Like, yeah. Cause yourself, dude. yeah. He gets so frustrated with the FBI because he's like, the more stuff my name is attached to, the more likely it is that somebody's going to try to do some kind of stupid true crime bullshit. Apparently I misunderstood the way the whole process works from the beginning, you know? So all the information that I've given you now is probably going to get out anyway, so... Now I'm getting ticked off at you guys because 
you said you weren't going to involve, you know, the other jurisdictions or whatever. And now everybody knows. And now my name's attached to this. And it's like, boo fucking who? Yeah, like you did it. Yeah. And he also had this really unrealistic idea that he was going to get an execution date within a year of him being arrested. And that's not how it works. But also Alaska didn't have the death penalty. So what he started confessing to Samantha Koenig's murder, that wasn't going to get him the death penalty no matter what. So that should have gotten arrested. Well, he got arrested in, no, was it in Texas that he got arrested? Yeah, he got arrested in Texas, but he's not, he didn't admit to any murders right. in Texas. Because he yeah. should, if he wanted to get a death penalty or like a execution date, he should have done it in Texas. Yeah, kill somebody in Texas, you will go to death row. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Yeah. The, FBI basically let him run the whole show. They pandered to him in an attempt to get any information from him, and they didn't really play the game. They let Feldus ruin the protocol, and once Israel realized how desperate they were for his cooperation, he knew that he held all the information, and if they didn't meet his demands, he wasn't going to give it up. So he he started to distrust them, and then once... Once the media circus happened around the landfill search in Vermont, he really, really distrusted the investigators because he had given them this information in, I guess, quote unquote, good faith that they weren't going to get the media involved or whatever. And so him saying that he was frustrated by it, he's like, you guys told me you were going to be able to control the media response by not giving them all the information. And it seems like you just turned around and fucking gave them all the information. So it, you know, it was not what we agreed on or whatever. So at that point he starts to really like clam up. He's starting to get pissed. He's starting to tell them like, I'm not going to give you any more information or he's being very, very closed off. And it, at one point, he even says, like, he doesn't want anymore. Like, he doesn't want cigars anymore. He doesn't want coffee anymore. Like, and he starts making comments that, like, you can't prosecute a dead man. You can't prosecute a dead man. So he's starting to threaten suicide a lot more at this point. So investigators know that they definitely need to start finding a way to get information from him. Yeah, change the plan the game plan yeah and and basically what they did the whole time was once they figured out that Israel did not want media attention and he even says like he's not in it for the glory and and all this stuff but he once they figured out that he didn't want media attention and that was that was really their leverage point so they they basically put all their eggs into that basket and and but it was it showed desperation on their part because they're like, Israel, if you want this execution date and like you don't want the media to find out about all this stuff, you've got to give us something. You've got to give us like we just need somewhere to get started. Like you don't have to give us fine if you don't want to give me all the details right now or whatever. You don't even have to give me a name. Just tell me like where the bodies are, where what jurisdictions they're in and approximately when it happened. Like that's all we need because then we can go to these jurisdictions and say, hey, we're going to be able to solve a, a cold case for you, a missing person or a homicide or whatever. Most of them were missing persons 
because they never found the bodies. They didn't know they were homicides. But, um, you know, they're like, we can go to these people and kind of ask them to play ball with us. But, you know, we're going to tell them that we're going to control the whole investigation. They don't get to they don't get to charge you or anything like that. And I think by that point, Israel Keys was like, I don't I don't buy that. I don't think yeah. that that's going to happen. He's like, I don't, you're not the boss of me. Yeah. And he's and he was like, I don't think you're going to be able to get them to not they're going to want to charge me. It, it doesn't make any sense. So but why does it even matter if he's going to if he wants to be unless it's like he in his mind it drug it out longer or something like if he's gonna mm-hmm. die anyway what does it matter yeah he didn't want to get extradited to other I see. things for like different trials or whatever and then he just also didn't want his name attached to stuff yeah because of his daughter which i mean backfired your name's everywhere like poor his poor daughter yeah i mean it's awful and he did give some information in bits and pieces, not in chronological order, no specifics, only in whatever way that he felt like he still had control. And there are some victims that may be attributed to him, but putting the pieces together is very difficult for law enforcement at this point. At one point, he admitted to committing a homicide on his trip to the East Coast in the spring of 2009. But like all his other trips, he flew into one city, put tons of miles on a rental car, turned his cell phone off for a few days. And I mean, who knows exactly where he traveled? Like basically all you have is a radius of like, here's where he picked up the rental car. And when he turned it back in, here's how many miles he put on it. And he could have gone. Yeah. In any direction. Anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And he was really, really good in the outdoors, right? I mean, he he was very... Absolutely. Yeah. He could... I mean, I'm pretty sure he was one of those people that could have, like, built a shopping mall out of a toothpick. Like, yeah. you know, he could live off the land for as long as he wanted to. Yeah. Like, he knew how to do that. Um, there is a missing person, though, that fits the timeline, and it actually got Israel's feathers ruffled when the FBI confronted him. Deborah Feldman was last seen on April 8, 2009 at her home in Hackensack, New Jersey. According to an article in the Star-Ledger, her son Matthew said that on April 8, 2009, Deborah was desperate for money, most likely wanting to buy more drugs. She demanded that Matthew give her the $400 check he'd made from working at a local Wendy's, and she threatened to kill herself if she didn't get the cash. And Matthew was, like, in his early 20s at this point, so it's like... That meant a lot to him, I'm sure. And he he needed that money. Yeah, I mean, it was his whole paycheck. So mm-hmm. he, Matthew said that when she said she was going to kill herself, he actually reached out and handed her a knife, and he said he knew she wasn't actually going to kill herself. She put it down, but then suddenly said she needed to have the cash to make her rent payment. And he said against his better judgment, he gave her the money because, quote-unquote, that's what family does. Israel never confessed to killing Deborah, but the FBI believes that she is his victim. It's unlikely they'll ever recover her body because, I mean, again, the only reason they've found Samantha and any parts of Bill and Lorraine, and they did find some fragments of their bones in that landfill, but they've never recovered everything, um, is because he told them exactly where it was. I mean, pulled up a map and everything. Yeah, so, it wasn't like they were just going to stumble upon it by themselves. Yeah, and he was very, like, he would he would use multiple crime scenes. He'd take somebody from wherever he took them from. He'd kill them somewhere different. And then typically he'd 
dispose of their bodies in a completely different area, a lot of times over state lines or whatever. Like, what a little shit. Yeah, and he would use, like, bottoms of very, very deep lakes. Like, he'd research, you know, in an area, what's the deepest part of this lake, and he'd find, you know, like, what are areas that, like, nobody's ever even been to the bottom, and... Yeah, you couldn't, like, dredge it and find. Yeah, so the likelihood of finding an Israel Keys victim's body is pretty low, I feel like. Deborah had been known to turn to sex work to fund her drug habit, and Israel had been known to visit sex workers, so there's another connection. Yeah, and that kind of gives him an in, too, right? Obviously, that day she was desperate for money, so if he happened upon her somewhere and said, hey, I'll you know give you some money or whatever, she probably would have been willing to get into his car, and that brings up Another difficulty in tying keys to his victims, though, the FBI can only sort through records of reported missing people, and there are people who never end up getting reported. So many sex workers or people who live more of like a drifter lifestyle never get reported, and therefore they never get looked for. It's such a sad reality. You couple that with the fact that Israel Keys did his best not to leave a trail, leave people in abandoned houses at the bottom of lakes like we talked about choosing victims he never had a connection with whatsoever and you've got a very difficult puzzle to solve luckily deborah was reported missing um but her son did say that you know there were times that she'd kind of go off the grid for a while and whatever so we we do happen to know the day that she went missing because he saw her that day and then he never heard from her after that and we do know that Israel Keys was within that radius. Like, he could have driven to that radius. And he did pride himself on having basically, like, no discernible pattern or victimology. But he did kind of follow a loose pattern. So he robbed banks, typically, in conjunction with his murders. He's told the FBI on more than one occasion that it helped to calm his nerves when he was amped up from a murder. To rob a bank? To go and commit a robbery, a bank robbery. Yeah. Wow. I can't see how that would calm anybody's nerves. I don't either. That's insane. He also said, like, a few times that the bank robberies basically gave him the same rush that murders did. So the... FBI agent is like, well, then would it be safe to assume that you've done a lot more robberies than murders because they're a little bit easier to carry out? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. I guess you get like he he won't give anything out really, but um, he he says that he likes robbing banks just as much as murdering people. I'm like, then why can't you just rob banks and not kill anybody? Yeah, exactly. He did commit a bank robbery in Tupper Lake, New York in 2009. And he admitted to that. He told the investigators about it. And I did listen to the podcast, true crime bullshit. Um, I actually haven't finished it, but it is a long form podcast about Israel keys. He's about to start a second season on, I guess, another case, but um, this one, the Israel keys one has 19 episodes. I'm not all the way wow. through it. Yeah. And they're like long. So he did an amazing job. There's so much information. So if you want like a lot more deep dive into like his entire history, he, he got all of the FBI's records, whatever they didn't redact. So he's got a lot of interrogation, a lot of information. Um, 
it's really, really good. But he points out a pattern, and it makes so much sense. He says, look for blocks of time where Israel Keys is traveling, he shuts his phone off, and then he commits a robbery. Because not every single time that he went out of town would be a time, we think, that he did murder somebody. There are some times where he's just burying a kill kit or whatever. And he said that he had at least a dozen across the United States. They've only recovered a couple of them. Um, they did recover the kill kit that he like used for this Tupper Lake bank robbery um, and the courier's murder. But a lot of them they haven't recovered. And they're just like five-gallon buckets of weapons, zip ties, the headlamps, Drano, guns, you know, all these things. It's horrific. But he says, you look for those blocks of time and you're going to find when he's just committed a homicide. So, because he, he would kind of at least follow that structure. Like, he's going to rent a car, he's going to drive around all over the place. But when you see him turn his phone off for a couple days and you know he's committed a bank robbery. So, like, in Texas, when he got arrested, for a few days before that, you can go back and look at his cell phone records, and they talk to his mom and everything, but he, at one morning while they were in Texas, he wakes up and he leaves early before everybody else wakes up, and his mom, Heidi, said she woke up to a text of him being like, hey, I'm going to go find somewhere to bury my guns. They knew that he buried guns all over the place, and they're totally cool with it. What? what? No problems. What would you need to bury guns for? I don't know. But I guess since they're separatists, maybe she's doesn't believe in, like, maybe she doesn't believe in banks and stuff. I'm not really sure. Yeah. You know? Like, I don't know. I don't know what they do. But um, to her, this was normal. It was fine. She's like, she even texted him and said, um, they, they called him Is or Izzy. Like, at one point, he wanted to go by that. And um, she's like, hey, we can help you. We can bury your guns for you. Like, we've got somewhere you can put them. You know, you don't have to go hunt around or whatever. But by that point, he'd already turned his phone off. So his daughter is with his mom, with his family. He, She's 10 years old. He wakes up, and he just up and fucking leaves. And he's gone for three days. Oh, wow. And they can't get a hold of him. And then finally, his phone comes back on, and he texts them and says, hey, um, well... No, I guess he turned his phone on that first day, but he said stuck in the mud um, in the middle of nowhere. And so they're texting him and they're like, you know, is, where are you? If you know where you are, we've got four wheel drive. We can come get you. We can help you, whatever. But by that point, he turned his phone back off. So he finally turns his phone back on a couple days later and he does admit to either trying to rob a bank or robbing a bank. Like he was considering robbing a bank, but he said everybody in Texas was too nosy and there were a lot more cameras than he was suspecting or like thinking that there would be even in these like basically one horse towns. Like he, he would really, really stake out banks and he would choose very, very small towns and basically thinking like they're not going to have much security there's not going to be very many people there. Like he would pick really, really easy banks to rob. But so, what he's not thinking about is all the people getting out their lawn chairs and their binoculars and watching everything everybody fucking does in small towns. <laughs> Welcome to the South. Exactly. We ain't got shit to do. Yeah, got nothing but time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Time moves slow in the country, so we're going to watch what the fuck you're doing because we bored. (laughs) But, yeah, so in Texas, we know that he turned his phone off for a couple days. He claimed he was stuck in the mud wherever he went to bury his weapons. Likely what was happening at that point is that he murdered somebody. And maybe he did get stuck in the mud because he found this abandoned place or whatever to dump a body or whatever it is that he was doing. But he's in a rental car. He's gone for a couple days and he's, his daughter is with somebody else and he has his phone turned completely off. Like, uh, I mean, that pisses me off all in another, like what an irresponsible parenting, not responsible at all. Yeah. Like what the fuck? But it's just, I mean, I get, you know, if you're, going to Italy on a trip and your kids are with, you know, your parents or your in-laws or whatever, you might not be available all the time, but... But he just up and left without even... Not warning anybody. Like, yeah, nobody knew he was going to be gone for a few days. Like, it's very strange. So he probably did murder somebody in Texas. We just don't know. Um, but, you know, that kind of fits that that pattern. So while he doesn't have that victimology and all those things, he he definitely does have a few kind of telltale signs that he's committing something. And he always took his battery out of his phone because he felt like that was a way to not get tracked. However, it's like he didn't realize you could fucking be tracked by an ATM card. (laughs) Right. Like, you dumb bitch. (laughs) So, I mean, even so, like... You can see that uphill battle, though, that the FBI is facing. Like, definitely. If that's all you have. And again, what if he did pick up a sex worker and and this person has never been reported, reported missing. missing? We don't even know who. And the thing about people being reported missing, too, sometimes is like, I don't know, say, I mean, I even think of Travis Alexander in the Jody Arias case. He wasn't reported missing right away because it was like over a weekend and like his roommate had gotten mixed up when he was supposed to go out of town. So his roommate thought he was out of town. He didn't think it was weird that he wasn't there. So it was what, four or five days before he got reported. So then when you have situations like that where somebody's not expecting you yet somewhere and so you're not reported missing immediately, like if I don't hear from you for two hours, I'm calling the police. (laughs) Hands down. Like, well, I mean, you'd rather be safe than sorry. Exactly. You'll be reported missing before you even go missing. I (laughs) promise you. But there are situations where like that, you know, it doesn't necessarily happen that way. So then when you have these, like, it could have been this day, it could have been that day. It gets really confusing. Like you don't know. So it's those, there's all those things that just make it so difficult. Mm -hmm. Closure for families of victims is was not something that Israel Keys cared about. I mean, when they would talk about, you know, things and interrogations and the FBI would say, you know, our goal is to give closure to as many families as we can. And Israel was like, I get that you want to do that. That's of no consequence to me. Like, that's not important to me. That's your problem. Yeah. The things that are important to me are getting what I want, basically. An execution date. Yeah, Snickers, Americanos, cigars, and I don't want my daughter to find out about this, all of which are, I mean, I guess except for the Snickers, are totally unrealistic. Like, your daughter's going to find out, and... You're not going to get an execution You're not going to get an execution date. The Courier family did release a statement 
that asked that people respond to this random act of violence with random acts of kindness. I cried when I listened to it because, I mean, hearing his, their family, I think it was Bill's sister that said it, but hearing their family like talk about it and just how heartbroken they were. And when I watched that method of a serial killer, because what they were saying is, okay, well, we at least know what happened to them and we know, we know where, where their bodies are now because it, it went to the landfill or whatever, even though we don't know exactly where they are. And his sister said, you know, people say, well, at least you've got closure now. And I kind of thought of it that way a little bit too, like, you know, and she's like, there is no closure. Um, what she said was still to this day, when she drives down the street, if there's a bag on the side of the road, she wonders if that's, if that's part of them. Like, can you imagine having to wonder that every single day and seeing a, anything on the side of the road and wondering if that's your brother and your sister-in-law? Like, Oh my gosh. And you know, and she's tearing up and I was sobbing my ass off. I mean, it was just, it's, it was a well done documentary. If you guys can watch it, it was, it left out a lot of stuff that the book included about the investigation. And, well, but I'm sure given their time limit. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and some of it was, was a little bit differing from what the book said as far as like some of the details, but it was still really well done. And, and it had a lot of information and it, it really did focus a lot on the families too, which I thought was important and like in the victims and remembering who they were. They did recover Samantha Koenig's body um, and her family was able to lay her to rest. But again, it's like, do you ever really get that closure? And Israel Keys was never fully brought to justice either. Again, that doesn't give you your, your loved one back, but there's just, there's just no real closure. And for so many of the families of the victims of Israel Keys, there's nothing at all. They don't know. Like Deborah Feldman's family thinks he probably murdered her, but they're not a hundred percent positive. We don't know where her body is. Like there's just all these things that are unknown. And even if the FBI can put him in the area of a missing person because of the way that he committed those crimes, totally at random, you know, crossing state lines, all these things, it's going to be almost impossible to find his victims, mm -hmm. even if they think that he he's responsible for somebody like like Deborah Feldman. He finally committed suicide in his cell on December 1st, 2012. So it was what about nine months after he'd been arrested. He did not take that long. He used a razor that he'd been accidentally issued in the prison. Um, they, they made a big fucking deal about telling them not to issue him anything because he, they knew he was a suicide risk and he was like in segregation in the prison and like, you know, he wasn't around anybody else or anything like that. And they even put like a handwritten note on his cell that says, do not give this prisoner a razor. And somebody accidentally did. So I don't really know what happened there. He cut his wrist and then he used the bedding to hang himself. And he left a really rambling suicide letter. Um, it's mostly like weird poetry. I'm not going to read it here. I don't even want to like give him the satisfaction because it's fucking stupid. You can look it up. It's like all over the internet. Um, but it's, it was really super weird. 
And with his death, he took any secrets he was going to reveal to law enforcement, if any. He, you know, he. I think he was to the point he wasn't going to do anything else yeah, anyway. He wasn't going to give him anything else. He decided that he had the upper hand, but... Well, but he kind of did the entire time anyway, so... Yeah, he did. He did. And it's just, it's sad the way that so much of it played out because, you know, while you can't ever give the the families of victims full closure, at least knowing, I don't know, at least knowing whether somebody is dead or alive or, I don't know. I, I think that for some people it, it does help to heal them some. Well, to, to know whether to mourn or to hold out hope. Right. Yeah. It's awful. It so, is. That's the case. Oof. I know. It's one of those things that like feels like watching Requiem for a Dream to me. It just I feel dirty after. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing. I mean, they're all horrible, but there's just nothing. I don't know. I just hate it and I hate him. And I hate his stupid laugh. I hate it. I hate everything about him. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. And he just like treated the whole interrogation thing like, hey, Bill, how's your weekend? Like talking about, st- I'm like, no, you are not a person that just gets to just be like, hey, let's smoke a cigar and hang out. Like, it's weird. Like, shoot the shit about all yeah. the murders that I've committed. Yeah. It's weird. It is weird. Awful. Gross. But also, I think we have to remember that you have to stay vigilant. There are things that could happen. And you got to get a dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Get a dog. Get a big German Shepherd. A security dog. A security dog. <laughs> Um, one of Tori's longtime clients. Yes, she's 15 now, but when she was five, she would talk about, they had German shepherds, they still do. And she was like, we have German shepherds, those security dogs, because she couldn't say her little R's yet. She can now, but. Right, but then, yeah, we still quote that. She's probably like, thanks. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was five. But yeah, I think it's important just to, to know what's possible, because it is super unlikely that you'll get abducted by a totally random person but it's possible so it's possible stay vigilant guys yes well thank you so much for listening and sorry it took so long to get this episode out (laughs) yep but we appreciate always appreciate a listen and we appreciate a review if you feel so inclined to leave us one yes that would be wonderful and we do um i'll add our email address into the description of this but If you leave us a review, screenshot it, email it to me at the email address, put your address, I'll send your ass a sticker. (laughs) Wow. Yes. To your ass. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Catch you next time. Love you. Love you. Bye. Oh, somebody posted in the group that their friend works at a coffee shop called Common Grounds. And she's always like really nervous when she has to close by herself. So the girl, the girl was like, she's my best friend. So I texted her and was like, hey, um, just listen to an episode of a girl who worked at a coffee shop called Common Grounds who was closing by herself and she got abducted by a serial killer. So have fun at work tonight. And she oh was like, you bitch. Gosh. Yeah. I was like, wow, she's lucky to have you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a best friend. But yeah, she was like. I guess she has good reason to be scared. Well, yeah. I was always scared to close by myself, like when I worked at Suntan City and stuff. 
Because sometimes we'd have weird ass people come in like right at closing. And, and in the summer, we had to be open till like fucking 10 p.m. Oh my God. Yeah. There are weird people mm-hmm. no matter what profession you're in. I yeah. Think. And people coming in at the tanning bed, like a dude coming in at like 945 wanting to tan and then like, I don't know, you know, they're going to like get naked and it's just like weird and they're acting weird. When people fall asleep a lot, you'd have to like. Yeah, people did fall asleep. One time somebody, it was like a man and a woman came in together. They obviously got assigned different tanning beds, but they, we caught them banging in there. (gasps) I mean, because like, hello, the top is open. It's not like a ceiling. So I can see the light getting brighter and darker. (laughs) Oh, they were in the bed doing that? Yes. Okay. That's so weird. (laughs) And then one time, Michelle, when we used to work at that other tanning bed, Hey girl, I'm pretty sure this happened to her. I don't remember who it was. Went in to like, you know, clean the bed or whatever. And somebody had fucking pooped in one. Oh my God. Left to poop. Yeah. And people have peed in them. Fucking weird. It's gross. Yeah. Get in on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Queens Podcast and join our Facebook discussion group at Killer Queens Podcast where we discuss cases covered on the show and all things 90s. If you want to submit a case to be covered on the show, visit www.killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission and complete the form. If we cover the case, we'll even give you a shout out on the show. Killer Queens is researched, mixed, and mastered by our own damn selves. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. And our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Lila's! Lila's.